the best thing you can do for your business, I don't care who you are, I don't care what you're doing, the best thing you can do for your business is simplify. Welcome closers. Today we have another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you. This is season two on sales. I'm your host, Jordan Moyla, and every week I interview world-class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who share actual insights to help you grow your property management empire. So whether you manage a hundred or a thousand units, this broadcast is designed to help you see the big picture and give you the tools and tactics that you need to get to the next level. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Meet Sun Tzu, the art of war. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Today, I'm talking with Jeremy Pound, the CEO of Juicy Results, a consultancy that helps great companies build scalable sales teams by getting the most out of their CRM. He's also the author of Seven Habits of Highly Scalable Teams and the host of the New Customer Machine podcast. In our chat today, we're going to cover Jeremy's best practices for scaling teams and how sales teams can use the CRM to master the sales process to create rapid growth and how you can use this strategy to build a better property management business. So if your sales process currently isn't actually much of a process, then this is the episode for you. Welcome to the show, Jeremy. Great to be here, Jordan. Thanks. Jeremy, give me some background. How did you get into consulting and specifically consulting on the sales side of the business? So I've run a professional service company pretty much my entire adult career. When I was 21, I started my first company, which was custom web software uh, way back in 2001. 2008, I launched Juicy Results to be a marketing agency. We ran it as a marketing agency for about eight years. And our niche was uh, to generate leads for sales teams. Basically doing that on a regular basis, you can imagine I was constantly exposed to uh, sales teams of all varieties. And I couldn't help but notice that there was a, a pretty wide disparity amongst our clients from the ones that kind of worked really well and the ones that you know crashed and burned or always seemed to have problems. And no matter how many leads we sent them, it never seemed like enough. Out of that, I decided uh, about 18 months ago, we sold off all the marketing services. We repositioned the company entirely. And we decided to do 100% CRM consulting to take what we had learned from the clients who were being most successful by using their CRM and by building scalable sales teams. How have things gone since that refocus? The best thing you can do for your business, I don't care who you are, I don't care what you're doing, the best thing you can do for your business is simplify. And I went from a creative services business that had six or seven product lines It was pretty undifferentiated, though, even though we had that niche of generating leads for sales teams. And I have completely focused it down into a single consulting program. You know, we solved one problem for one type of client. And I can't tell you how much better my life is because of it. Mm, Wow. Love it. So this is the magnifying glass concept. You take all those beams of light, that energy, that focus, and you focus it on a single point and the results are compounded. I totally get that. The first thing that you said, though, really caught me. As somebody that has worked on the lead generation side of the business, as somebody that has done a lot of consulting around marketing, what we know is that the lead gen just doesn't matter unless people can close the leads. Sales and marketing must play nice together for folks to get 
results. Now that you're on the sales side of things and focusing on optimizing for process, which ultimately is going to look like salespeople closing leads, how do you deal with the demand gen side of things? Do you just leave that completely up to the client? Do you have partners on side of on that side of things? Because obviously sales consulting for folks that have insufficient lead flow really isn't going to go anywhere either. How do you handle that? Consistent lead gen is a, is a key component of the framework that we teach, but it's actually the last framework. So I like the analogy of if you sell wood chips, Jordan, and you've got a great wood chipper, you're going to look around. Everything is going to look like wood to you, right? You're going to be looking at, you know, antique furniture. And you're like, I could chip that, you know, you're looking at the garbage that people leave out on the side of the road. And you're like, I could turn that into wood chips, right? But if your wood chipper is broken and you're getting regular deliveries of wood, that's just going to pile up outside. That's what I see a lot of companies were doing. That, that's what the companies that hired us that didn't have a sharp sales process or all the other components of the framework in place, the leads are just piling up on the loading dock and it was pointless. And so because of that, we focus on making sure that they've got a wood chipper that's fine-tuned, that's working. And then we make sure the third component is to make sure that they actually have consistent lead flow. And by the way, as a side note, one of the biggest problems I hear, objections I hear when I talk to entrepreneurs, uh, both potential clients, when I go to conferences, you know, my friends and, and different entrepreneurs organizations, they basically tell me the reason that they're not building their sales team is that you know they look at it as a cost, right? So they're like, okay, every yeah. salesperson I hire, it's more money I'm going to be paying, right? And the only reason that anyone is looking at a salesperson as a cost is because they don't have the lead gen dialed in. Because when you have so many leads that you can't get back to them in time, you would never make a statement like, I can't afford another salesperson or salespeople are expensive or any of the other things that we probably always hear. Love it. Couldn't agree more. All right, man, you're preaching to the choir here. So <laughs> conceptually, here's the framework that I tend to promote. Because what I hear from my clients is the inversion of what you just suggested. I just need more leads. If I had more leads, all my growth problems would be solved. Mm -hmm. I also put that at the end. My emphasis tends to be first focusing on customer lifetime value, which is another way of saying that you actually do your job well. The service mm -hmm. that you provide is functional. Then focusing on your customer acquisition cost, which is going to be a byproduct of both the sales and the marketing function. But customer acquisition cost really is, is holding you accountable to actually closing those leads. Then focusing on cost per lead. And cost per lead is a byproduct of efficient marketing. And then finally focusing on lead volume. Because anybody can get lead volume from day one tomorrow. Swipe mm -hmm. a credit card, spin up an AdWords campaign, Facebook campaign, etc. But what I find is that lead volume is the least challenging problem. For whatever reason, it tends to be have primacy in folks' minds. But there's a lot of preconditions that are really necessary in order for that lead volume to actually produce results. So I'm with you on that. On the sales process, where do you start. I know you do some qualification of the types of people that you can help. What does your qualification process look like? And how is that related to overall client success? I always go back to the patterns I see between the companies that I work with and have worked with that are crushing it versus everybody else, right? And those sure. top performers, they know their client so well. Everybody in the organization, doesn't matter if they're 10 people or 1,000 people, they celebrate and talk about who their client is everybody else is very gray, right? Everyone else is kind of like, yeah, we can help this person. And sometimes it's that person. 
But the companies that really scale, they know who they're going after. And it's a little bit of a paradox, right? But I mean, that's a topic that's been driven into the ground in terms of specialization. So what we teach our clients and we use ourselves is something called chasing the fat deals, right? And I don't remember if we made this up or if we stole this from someone. I just can't. We've been using it so long. And it's just too good of an idea for me to believe that we actually made it up. You know, you want to chase the fat deals. And that's an acronym for, for fit, ability, and timing. And I think this works um, for all salesperson type driven sales, but especially for B2B. And so, you know, fit, they're the exact kind of client you're going after and, and you make exactly what they're looking for. Ability, right? They, they actually have the ability to hire you, whether that's the authority or the budget or whatever, even the mindset, right? That they can understand what you're going to do for them. And then timing and, and timing is the most underappreciated element because salespeople are persistent and they're optimistic. And, and we all celebrate those stories of following up with a client for three years and then finally signing on the, on the dotted line. Well, I think that's great. I don't think that's a, a very good solution for prioritization. So one of the first things we do with our clients is we define who their fat deal is. And we help them uncover a series of questions where they don't have to say very off-putting things like, are you the decision maker, right? What's your budget? Are you willing to you know, spend $25,000 to solve this problem? We, we try to come at it in, in more of a consultative and service approach. So the second I'm on the phone with the new prospect, I say, look, we have a very proprietary framework. I don't think there's anything in the world like it, but it's totally built to service phone-based sales teams that are between $1 and $10 million that have a stated goal of doubling sales in the next one to three years. So if this is not you, you know, the solution may add some benefits, but you know, if this is you, then this thing is a slam dunk and it'll totally solve all the problems you're having. And it's a very positive, proactive way to filter who we're talking to. And I, I mean, I literally say that was one of the first things I get on the call. Once I understand what they're calling me for and they're trying to do, teach that to all my salespeople. And it's just such a great springboard for a sales conversation. And it gets the qualification right out of the way. I love it. So where I was really going with the qualification was just pointing out the fact that infrastructure, dollars, bodies are a proxy for commitment. So if somebody comes to you or I and they say, in our case, in our industry, man, I'm really committed to growing by 300 doors, 500 doors, doubling my business. There's a pretty brief conversation that you can have to determine whether or not that is a wish or there is actually a will and a plan and a strategy behind that. And ultimately, that has to translate down to resources being committed to that endeavor. Because what I find the consistent pattern with small businesses in general, but certainly within property management, is that sales marketing is not operationalized. It is not given equivalency. It is treated as kind of an ad hoc sort of thing. Like What we do yeah. is make widgets, cobble shoes, manage properties. But by the way, on the side, you know, we have this sales and marketing thing and we, we kind of do it on an as-needed basis to serve the business as opposed to considering it as being just another part of operations, any other aspect in the business. And I think that mindset and that shift is really the difference between actually getting results and making that commitment versus just looking at growth as being more of an aspirational sort of thing. Couldn't agree more. You're 100% right. I think that the, the small companies that, that are not scaling look at marketing and sales as, as a luxury. It's actually what will help them scale, but it's what they tell themselves they'll do once they scale, right? And it's really out of order. Mm -hmm. And the, the analogy that I give is 
imagine a sales and marketing firm that said that they were going to start managing properties on the side, right? They're just uh-huh. going to dabble with it. Well, to a property manager, that would sound ridiculous. And yet when you invert it, somehow thinking that you're just going to kind of dabble in sales marketing on the side and make it work, given that it is the highest point of leverage in your business. What do all property managers have in common? They manage properties. They figured out operations. It's not rocket science. Now, granted, there certainly is a difference in quality of uh, service delivered, etc. But mastering that sales marketing function is one of the most challenging things that you can do because it is outside of that core competency of services. Mm-hmm. Um, it does require learning a new set of skills and you know, let's be honest, it, it takes time. It's challenging. So kind of dialing back into the sales side of the business, walk me through how you view a functional sales team functioning, building it from scratch, right? So let's say I've got the will and I've got the dollars right now, but I do not have any sales infrastructure. Historically, I've been taking calls myself. Walk me through kind of graduating progressively to, to scaling that up over time. That's and I told you we have one product, one outcome. You know, this is what we do, right? So people tend to call us for help with their CRM or, you know, my little, you know, playful avatar on the internet is the CRM guy. But we do that because that's what people think they need. But what they're actually trying to do when they're really going in on their CRM, and as you know this better than anyone, Jordan, <laughs> that that's when they're trying to scale their business, right? We teach a little thing called the scalable sales team blueprint. The scalable sales team blueprint is our framework, but but what it really means is you know, no two companies are going to have the exact same blueprint. What we're trying to help our companies do is find their unique blueprint, right? What, what's going to work? What's your special, your secret sauce that you can turn into the wood chipper and you can dial it up as fast as you want? And so at a very high level, very simply, there's three elements to the framework. And if, if you have to get all three of these right to scale the sales team. And I'll say this, if you get all three elements right, you can scale your sales team without the drama, without the stress and without the fear it really is like, you know, adding octane to the rocket ship. And so the step one is you need a selling system. Step one is the hardest one because what gets a company from zero to one or $5 million is typically one rainmaker, right? 90% of the time it's the business owner. I've seen it a number of times where it's not the business owner, but it's a, it's a key first hire who knows a bunch of people in the industry. And it's that rainmaker that this is second nature to them. They don't have to think about how they sell or why they sell. There is no system, right? Everything is by the seat of their pants. Now, there may be a system that they don't realize they're doing, but if you press them, they'll have a hard time identifying it on their own. So one of the key tenets that that I've learned from great people much smarter than I am is that often the strength of the leader is the weakness of the business. If you have a very financial-driven entrepreneur who starts the company then the company may be in great financial standpoint. But as soon as that owner tries to you know, go on vacation or they get sick, everything's going to come to a halt, right? It's the same with sales, same with operations. So the most common problem we see is that the company's not scaling exactly because of what got it to where it's at, right? Because that business owner can just take a call and they can just generate you know, rain whenever they can, but they're still dealing with the same finite calendar that you and I are dealing with, right? So mm-hmm. we help companies create a selling system, right? A selling system is something that you can teach. And our litmus test for do you have a selling system is can you hire a new sales rep on Monday and have them autonomous by Friday? That's a big idea for a lot of companies, a big stretch, but we've seen companies do it over and over again. 
and and they come to us and they say, you know what, we have salespeople that work for us for six months and don't make any sales. And I'm like, well, that's not really that their fault. That's probably your fault <laughs> for not training them correctly. So step number one is a factory-like sales system, which is what we teach, okay, a selling system. Step two, right, because now you're going to go from a single salesperson or two salespeople or whatever it is to a team. And when you have a team, you need a sales management system. The systemization doesn't just stop at selling. You actually need a system to manage your salespeople. And so our brand promise around you know, step two is that we believe when you've done this right, you can manage each salesperson in one hour or less a week, and they'll still grow and they'll still be effective. Factory-like sales system is number one. Sales management system is number two. And then number three comes back to, you know, full circle, Jordan, consistent lead gen, right? It's the wood chipper. If you don't have consistent lead gen, then you're always going to tell yourself that the new salesperson's not working out because there's just not enough opportunity, right? And so you've got to have a complete check and balance, a, a closed system that goes all the way around, enough leads, enough people to actually sell. They need to know how to sell. And you need a system in place so you don't have to lose sleep every night wondering if they're doing the job. All right. So what is in the selling the system, this process that is going to allow me to hire on Monday and get results by Friday? What are some of the constituent elements? So I'll walk you through what we do. The first meeting we have with the client is we're going to say, let's talk about your sales process, right? I know you talked about the seven habits of scalable sales teams. This whole book, which is only 50 pages, by the way, and it's kind of the you know framework for what we do, is we're comparing the companies at scale versus everybody else. I think that a lot of us have it in our mind that a 10 million company is just doing things 10 times faster than a $1 million company. And I, and I can sure. assure you that it's not the case, right? You're trying to win a horse race by like the length of a nose and they're bringing a helicopter to the horse race. It's totally different, right? And I know it's a funny analogy, but it's, it's, it's that extreme in my opinion. And so I constantly have my antennas up. I'm fascinated by the different things I see in the 100-person sales companies versus the one or two person sales companies. And so the first thing that ever stuck out to me is that if you introduced me to a, to a really scalable sales company, it's got like 100 reps, and you randomly picked out three salespeople and you let me call them. And I said, hey, how do you define a sale at your company, right? What constitutes a sale? I'll get three identical answers. It's amazing, right? If I call anyone else that has a, a two or three person sales team and I ask them, what's a sale look like at your company? I'm going to get a really long-winded answer and it's going to be different, right? Some people will say, oh, it's when I get the agreement signed. The other people will say, you know, it's when we get the deposit, right? Or it's when, you know, somebody, you know, finally renews past the 30-day guarantee mark. So it seems so simple, but there's so much more precision in, in the scalable teams versus everybody else. I use the analogy in the book that we look at a wall, you might say it's blue, but somebody who is a little bit who took one art class in college will say it's actually aqua. And then an interior designer will say it's viridian. But which color do you want to use if you're trying to touch up a hole on that wall, right? <laughs> you're going to get a different result if you say blue or viridian. That's a big step, right? When you're hiring your first salesperson, they're very nervous about that. And so we just basically say, when are you going to be comfortable paying a commission? And they'll say, oh, it's when I get you know payment or it's when I get the first renewal or whatever it is at your company. And then we work our way backwards. We simply identify the milestones. And you'll know coming from the CRM world how, how every CRM has stages of a sales process and how few companies fully understand the stages of their sales process. 
Once you know the path of least resistance or the most effective path of total stranger to now they're a customer, then you can really build a selling system. And it's very simple, but that's all we do. So we just basically say, what's a sale in your company? And then we work our way backwards. And we basically just create this factory-like sales process, right? We think the CRM is the assembly line taking the customer through the sales process. Even if it's just one sales rep doing everything themselves, it's got to be a consistent path. You've got to have line of sight from total stranger to customer in the door. And when you have that selling system, you can teach it, you can define the activities that lead to sales, and you can specialize it, right? And so you say, you know, how can you hire on a Monday and have them autonomous by Friday? Well, if you're the business owner and you're prospecting, you're qualifying, you're closing, you're upselling, you may not want your first sales rep to do that. You may want your first sales rep to just open doors for you to close, or you just may want them to call existing customers and upsell them. So that's what we're really trying to do. We're trying to open their minds to what capacity can we bring somebody in here that's going to make you more profitable right away. Why do sales stages matter? Why is that some anything more than the business owner just being kind of anal about getting people to update a bunch of minutiae in the CRM? Like, tell me more, Jeremy, about why CRMs are actually important and, and matter. Yeah. One of the biggest objections I get when I get brought in is they say, I don't care how good you make our CRM. And you know, by the way, for the sake of your listeners, I know you know this, Jordan. I don't just sell one CRM, right? Like we're platform agnostic. So if I'm being brought in, they say, I don't care what CRM you bring us or you build for us or you customize for us. My people just aren't using it. My first job is to get them to understand that a CRM should add zeros to their day. So if you're currently closing 10 deals a week, our system is going to get you to close 100. Maybe not right away, but if we truly do our job, we're going, to add, we're going to multiply your day. How do we do that? We eliminate decision fatigue. Uh, we eliminate the blank candor syndrome. And we eliminate unnecessary decision-making. So what that means is today you've got 10 deals in, in your spreadsheet that you're managing. And you look at everyone and you say, oh, shoot, what's the next thing I need to do for this person, right? Like, do I call them back? Why aren't they moving forward? When you've got a CRM and you've got stages, you always know how to get them from A to B and B to C. So now you can call back or deal with or mentally process a hundred times as, as many people. Because I, I pull them up. I have a selling system. It's in my CRM. I can spot check any deal with anyone on my team. And I can say, tell me what's going on with deal A. right? And they're going to pull it up in the CRM. They're going to realize they're at step B. And they're going to tell me all the ways they're going to get them to step C. And it simplifies everything when you actually use the stages. Where does the further breakdown happen? Once you're in it and you've provided all of that infrastructure, surely you still have basic CRM compliance issues, some people that don't want to use it. Once you've put some of that infrastructure in place, then there's obviously some training, psychology, comp. Like, What other factors influence it beyond having a lot of templates and pre-configuration? Everybody operates from a standpoint of what's in it for me, even if you don't realize you're doing it. And so I'm constantly selling to the salespeople why this is going to make their job easier. We may not realize it, but we can all relate that we copy and paste the same email or retype the same email 50 times. I need to first challenge them to believe that they can do 10 times as much sales as they're doing today. Once they believe that, all I need to do is show them the tools that will do that. Here's another question. How do you demonstrate the impact, right? If, if some of those results come in 
And the salesperson is basically thinking, well, I'm, I'm working harder. You know, it was me. I was the de- deterministic factor. What is the closest that you can get to attribution or A-B testing with types of follow-up, cadence of follow-up, et cetera? In general, the testing world is, is kind of muddled, and I know it's challenging. But any thoughts on trying to sniff out attribution of changes and variance in process? I've never even had to focus on that, Jordan, because, and you've seen this with your own eyes. I mean, when a team really understands that there's a selling process and not, you know, just sales as a black art, and that now it's not how do I sell this customer, but it's how do I move them from step B to step C. And all of my KPIs are managed on a very simple scorecard. We're big believers in scorecards. This is a Rockefeller habit. If you've ever heard of scaling up or, you know, Vern Harnish's The Rockefeller Habits book, it's a business staple if you haven't read them. But there's so much power in his simple principle is that he always asks you, do your people know if they had a good day and a good week? I took my leadership team when we had more of the agency. And so it was me and four people. And he was basically asking these questions. And he said, do your people know when they have a good day? And it was like, I was just hoping my team didn't turn and look at me because I felt guilty that it was never enough. Like I, I didn't set clear boundaries. Like I was, I was, you know, as much as I'm a great guy and if you get to know me, like uh, my team always says I'm a very like coachable leader and I'm very respectful. But I, I realized that I wasn't setting clear boundaries for my people, anybody. And everything changed that day. And a, a big part of that is what I look at scorecards as. So when we hire salespeople now, we already know what the prototypical day and week looks like. I want them to go home on a Friday afternoon feeling like they crushed it. If they crushed it, if they crushed it, I want them to go home and sleep like a baby and know that they had a great week, even if they didn't close 10 deals. So if I know that a successful salesperson does five presentations a week, they sign up 25 people for our webinar and they renew two licenses. If you can do that in a week, you are going to kill it over time. So everything on your dashboard is going to be a visual representation. If, if the bullet chart is you know 50 calls by the end of the week and it's Wednesday and you only have 10, it doesn't take any training to tell you that you're behind. You're just going to know it visually. That's you know really what we focus on that makes all of this so much easier. For the folks that you're working with, do they tend to segment out the outbound versus an inbound selling role? 100%. Uh, they, they don't before they get to us. You know, I used the term before like decision fatigue and blank canvas syndrome. Task switching is, is a productivity killer. There's so much of what we teach that is rooted in performance observation, right? And, and psychology and just understanding how our brain works. And I don't mind if you ask a salesperson to make a hundred calls in an hour, but I don't ever want you to ask them to do a hundred different things in a week or a month. That task switching kills productivity. And it also reduces our ability to get really good at something. I love that. And furthermore, the task switching between inbound versus outbound is is even worse because you basically have people that are calling in and want to talk to you versus people that have never heard of you and that you feel like you're kind of really having to lean in. Which of those activities are you going to gravitate towards? You're going to gravitate towards the warm leads. So there's just a lot of... uh, It's a confusing context to be straddling that. Talk to me on the inbound side about call response time. What do you consider to be a sufficient response time when a new lead comes in? We all know that quicker is better. I mean, there's a lot of research out there. There's a lot of statements that say... I mean, I've read study after study that says, you know, if you don't call back 
a prospect in the first hour, they're gone, right? Because especially if it's a web form, think about how we shop, right? I mean, if you're, if it's 6 p.m. at night and you just know you got to buy something, you know, you need a quote to, I don't know, a pressure clean your roof. You probably go to three websites, fill out the same form. And then as soon as somebody calls you back and says, I got an answer, you're not going to take the other calls. So I get that, but I want to go deeper. I think it really depends on your business model. And it really depends on what the product is and what your customer makeup is. I think it's very important to understand. And this goes back to my marketing days. Are you doing demand generation? Are you doing demand fulfillment? I think this is one of the least appreciated concepts in marketing. Demand fulfillment means the customer knows they have a need and they're simply looking to fill it. If I get coffee delivered to the office weekly and my coffee delivery company goes out of business, I mean, I pretty much know what the terms of that deal are. That's demand fulfillment. Demand generation is what most of us actually do. And demand generation is what I joke, it's a Snuggie. Nobody knew that they needed the Snuggie until we saw the infomercial. And then we all started calling to order the Snuggie, right? <laughs> so if, if I called to order the Snuggie and they didn't answer... Yes, maybe my need to follow through would go down when I, I don't know, when the you know potato chip high wore off the next morning and I no longer wanted it. But you know, nobody else was calling me to sell me their version of the Snuggie first. So the closer you are to demand fulfillment, which means the, the more your customer knows what they're looking for, the more important service matters and speed yes. and getting back to them. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, so that's what I'll say. All right. So I like that. I would pivot and take another angle on it and also just kind of talk about the commonality between types of products, categories of sale. You could talk about low touch, high touch, high complexity, low complexity. So I look at the property management industry. I look at the sales cycle. I look at the size of the transaction, the number of stakeholders involved. And I can see similarity in a lot of other adjacent industries, whether that be insurance, real estate, mortgage, Etc. If you're trying to buy services from IBM and it's going to take six months and it's going to be a $10 million deal and there's 20 stakeholders involved, well, that's a completely different situation. And clearly call response time is not going to be the, the deterministic factor. But if I as a consumer am purchasing something where, let's say in the case of property management, that it's going to be 150 bucks a month on a recurring basis and I'm the only person involved in, in the decision and I want to get somebody on the phone right now, then it could be a huge factor. And the point of differentiation for me is that when I reach out and I fill out a web form and let's say I contact three people, the person that calls me back within 30 seconds, what occurs for me is, ah, this is one of them. This is one of those companies that's just really responsive. And mm-hmm. all things being equal, I would just prefer to be with the company that is more responsive, at least on the front side, because you know it's not going to get better afterwards. Yeah, right? <laughs> well said. So that's like the, the first I, date. You got to know your selling process. You got to know your value proposition. You got to know your customer's decision making process, right? And that will give you the answer to that question. So let's talk about some of the long-term sales past the immediate sales cycle. Somebody didn't convert. How do you work with folks on, let's say, the lead nurturing side of things? And do you feel like that bleeds into marketing for when somebody down funnel, let's call them a lead, moves back up funnel, back into like the prospect category? Where does sales begin and marketing end and vice versa? What, what are your thoughts on all that? Before I step up on my soapbox, uh, let me preface okay. this and say... That, you know, my clients are typically sub $10 million companies. They are successful. They got their act together. They're doing something right, but they're, they're not 
really conglomerates, right? And so the line between sales and marketing isn't always as clear as it should be. So I just want to say that because what I'm going to say, I feel very strongly about, but I realize it may be less applicable to, you know, a 10,000 person company. Okay. So here's how I feel about that. Chasing dead deals is one of the worst things a salesperson can do. If you've got a true rainmaker in your company or a top performer, whether it's one or 10, I would argue that their time and their energy is actually one of the most valuable assets in your entire company. So when you think about a surgery center, you know, how does, how does a hospital raise revenue, right? They do more surgeries. That's why the surgeon, which is the limiting factor, doesn't call you to make sure you're coming in tomorrow for your appointment. They don't change the bed sheets. They don't reorder supplies. They don't do any of that stuff, right? They just operate, they meet with the patients, and they learn how to be better surgeons. I think we should apply this analogy to our best salespeople. So I preach a thing called active pipeline. Be diligent, qualify ruthlessly. We talked about fat deals. Anybody that, that has a stage where you have a dated next step, right? So we talked about stages and we know that they have, they're qualified and now we need to decide which product is best for them. We have a date on the calendar. We're going to meet, we're going to talk about it, or we just had a meeting and they promised to get back to me in two days with a decision. That's a dated next step. That is active pipeline. That is where all of your time should be. Now, like I said before, we love to celebrate the story of following up with somebody for a year and kicking down doors and closing the deal. All that can be automated today, Jordan. I mean, this is, you know that, right? I mean, this is what, this is what your CRM does. So yeah. I believe that if you give your sales team the right tools that work, that are effective, that will nurture a, what I call a nurture pipeline, right? So you got your active pipeline, which I just stated, and you got your nurture pipeline. Your nurture pipeline has not told you no. They have not told you never. They just basically said not now or things are coming up or it's a bad time or, you know, I'm still not sure that, that this is right for me. That's, that's your nurture, right? And they need to be a different part of your CRM, whether it's a different stage, a different tag, whatever. And that's easy. That's just in your face, in your place, in your space over time. I'm in front of you. I'm in front of you, in front of you. All of that communication, whether it be email, phone calls, anything should be doing only two things. All of your follow-up communications should either A, crystallize the pain that they're in today or magnify the benefit of the future that they could be in if they, if they hired you. And that's it. And if you do that over time, this whole thing will pay for itself and you will convert way more leads. Love it. So you're not discounting lead nurturing. Your point is simply that that should be done in an automated fashion and not be something that you're using a, a valuable skilled labor to focus on. Yeah. And I'll well, say this. So let's say you're a real small company, right? And you don't have it automated yet. You don't. Let's just carve out different times. So let's have a dedicated two hours on Friday morning where the salesperson nurtures the deals that are not active. Let's just, let's just put a boundary around it. Let's just be honest with ourselves. Let's not look at our pipeline and say, I got 50 deals in the pipeline when you truly have seven and you have 43 nurtures. That's really the point. But as you scale up, yes, use the technology to save that person the time. So you mentioned the superstars. Let's talk about where those superstars exist. Do you think the superstars are more likely to exist on the outbound side? Or do you believe that a superstar can be just as likely to be found on the inbound side as well? So I would say that I would define you know, a superstar or top performer, whatever you're using your industry, as someone who kills the scorecard, right? So like I said, we preach scorecards. An outbound sales development rep in my organization 
their scorecard, everything on it is about setting up consultations for the consultants. The consultants' scorecards are all around converting the right kind of clients. So two different types of salespeople in the same system, the same company, two different scorecards, different personality types, different skill sets. So I think you can have superstars anywhere. The, the key point here is what makes one successful should not be used to measure the other type of person, right? So it's the Albert Einstein you know, graphic where it's like, uh, what does he say? Like, if you ask a fish to climb a tree, it's going to look like an idiot or something like that. So I'm killing that analogy, by the way. But uh, there's some <laughs> you Einstein. Wanna, you don't want to lean the right ladder against the wrong wall. Yeah, that definitely works as well. So get clear on the outcomes for that role. If they're an account manager, they're gonna they're gonna grow accounts. They're gonna they're gonna manage retention. They're gonna um, offset churn. If they're a door opener. They're going to create qualified opportunities, right? And they're going to qualify people. They're a closer, then they're going to convert. And they're going to convert the right kind of clients and not overpromise in a way that you can't deliver. So it's different metrics that will make each of them a superstar. And that's a scorecard. And we think that should all be managed in the CRM. Do your clients, by and large, always have a outbound team? Or do you have any that are 100% reliant on marketing for doing lead gen and only have inbound folks to convert those? What I want my clients to have is both, right? I mean, that is a big tenet of what I say. I said, you are missing the boat. So the company that is most famous for inbound, right? Which is HubSpot. I hope you're okay with me mentioning them. They're the most famous company in the world for inbound. They have a conference called Inbound. They created the Inbound Movement. They have one of the largest outbound teams in Uh, America. (laughs) I've met their VP of sales. I mean, they have like 700 salespeople or something like that. So if that's not an argument why they both matter, I don't know what is. But my, my answer to your question more simply is I 100% have clients that kill it on the inbound. They're spending millions of dollars on marketing and they've got more leads than they know what to do with. And so they, they won't even answer my phone when I want to talk about outbound, right? Because they're overwhelmed. And then I have clients that just do outbound that no matter what I try to talk to them about, they look at me like I'm crazy when I talk about advertising with them. Last question before we go to the rapid fire section of the interview on compensation. Do you have any high level thoughts or strong opinions about what does or doesn't work on the comp model? I think it all works. Again, it goes, it's just like the scorecard. You got to know your culture. You got to design the comp plan for the personality type you're trying to hire. Let's think about a car dealership. So car dealerships are sales machines. However you feel about them, They are celebrated for investing and refining the sales process. So when I say a salesperson at a car dealership, a lot of people think of the actual car lot salesman, which is almost 100% commission. But did you know that a substantial portion of a new car sales revenue is driven by the finance manager? So if you've ever leased or bought a new car and you go to sign the paperwork, you're presented with tire warranties. You're presented yeah. with upgrades, right? You're, you know, he's trying to get you to take the right deal. That's a salesperson. His commission is driven differently than the guy that was on the front of the house. Now, when you come back for your service and the guy checks you in to do your service, do you ever notice that they ask if you want snow tires because the season's coming up, right? Do you, ever, can, you want the oil upgrade? That's a salesperson too. And his competition is totally different than the finance manager. So you got to know, get clear on the system. It all starts with that. Then you, you look at it through the lens and say, what kind of person would kill this role? Okay, this is a farmer. This is a hunter, right? This is a door opener. This is a, a consultative, high empathy listener. And then design the plan that will work for that person. 
Love it. That's that's exactly what I was looking for. Some high level thoughts. All right, rapid fire section of the interview, Jeremy. We ask some guttural questions, and we're just looking for quick answers from you on a series of questions. The first is this: Who do you learn from? So my motto is learning and teaching daily. I'm constantly learning. I listen to every morning. I work out. I listen to podcasts. I'm a huge student of Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, and uh, anything that you know is Jim Collins or anything in business. I talk about Vern Harnish, part of the you know entrepreneurs organization. So I I eat everything scaling up I can. Those are my big influences when it comes to business. Any other podcast names you would put out there? I've really come to appreciate Russ Rufino and his you know clients on demand system. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but Russ Rufino's got a great podcast I've been listening to. I love. Entree Leadership, which is actually owned by who's the finance guy, the money. Um, <laughs> totally. Went yeah, blank. You, yeah, you guys will know it. We're, yeah, we're everyone that's listening name. knows who it is. And I just went blank. But anyway, he has a, a brand where he teaches businesses how to be better. And it, he's got a great, really polished podcast called Entree Leadership that I recommend. Love it. You're talking about Dave Ramsey. Dave Ramsey. Thank you so much. <laughs> that would have killed me the rest of the interview if you didn't say it. <laughs> All right. So what about books? Is there any one book that you would point to over the last decade as having maybe like the most profound impact on your business career? Yeah, 100%. Even though I think that some of the tactics may be slightly out of date, and this is purely business, by the way, right? Like this is the book for my business answer. Uh, Chet Holmes. Ooh, ultimate I, sales machine. Dude, in my mind's eye, in my mind's eye, bro, I was wondering if that's what you were going to say. Sales machine. Yeah. How did you know that? I, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> I don't know, but like somehow I was just mentally projecting that because you said some of the stuff may be out of date. I think yeah, that's what triggered it. Exactly. Me. So you read it and he's talking about, you know, calling and, you know, facts or whatever, but the takeaway is strategy over tactics, right? Exactly. Three of the answers I gave you were be strategic, not tactical. And that's what Chet Holmes taught me. Ah, love it. That's a classic. Guys, if you haven't picked it up, grab it. Couldn't agree more. Jeremy, if you could do it all over again, what one piece of advice would you have given to yourself at the beginning of your career? You can do anything you want, but you can't do everything. I had such a problem with focus in the beginning. I was, ta- I was saying yes to everything. And you heard at the beginning, I mean, full circle, right? I was like, my life is so much better. I- I've just missed out by chasing too many opportunities. And I used to joke that I had 50 wells dug 10 feet deep, right? You can't strike oil digging 10 feet deep. Love it. Totally makes sense. I can relate to that. Final question of the interview. Jeremy, in your opinion, are entrepreneurs born or bred? Hmm. I've heard this asked before. I don't know if I have a strong opinion on this. I'm a second generation entrepreneur. I watched it. My parents joked that when they had company over when I was like four years old, I sold uh, tickets to a puppet show that I then put on in my closet for all the guests like when they arrive. <laughs> to me, the root of entrepreneurship is possibility, right? Just seeing what's possible and having the confidence that you can fill the gap. That's a tough thing to teach. Are you familiar with Carol Dweck's mindset? No, I'm not. So Carol Dweck is... I'm going to make this up. Stanford, right? She's somewhere and she teaches this whole thing on there's really two types of mindset. Every person has a fixed or growth mindset. A fixed mindset basically says rich people are rich because they're born that way, right? Mm, ooh, athletic yeah. people are athletic because they're born that, you know. Whereas a growth mindset says that person's rich because they grew. They invested in themselves, they did things. I could do that too. There's actually a podcast where and I'll send it to you if you want to share this in my notes. I highly recommend it. There's a great comedian who's not only funny but super smart and his name totally escapes me right now. Brian Callen. That's who it is. Brian Callen. He was the uh 
the wedding store owner and the hangover. If you saw the hangover and the guy who like was the, the guy who owned the overnight wedding place. So Brian Callen interviews these amazing business people. Who also, he doesn't do it anymore, but his podcast was amazing. And he interviews Carol Dweck in one hour about mindset. I make every new employee listen to that podcast and then tell me how they feel about it because I immediately want to filter out anybody with a fixed mindset out of my company. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it, man. I think about this with my kids. I have two little girls right now, and it's something I want to get really clear on in my language yeah. with them. Even just little things like saying you're smart, which, you know, it's it's innocent enough. But in my communication, I do not want to project onto them that the good things in their lives are a byproduct of some immutable characteristics as opposed to determined by things that are actually within the scope of their control. So I love that answer. That's what Let, me, let me riff on this real fast. I think it's really important. I saw Chet Holmes in a video said he saw this study and I've yet to find it. I look for it. And they, they went through some of the most successful people in the world in every category. I like Mick Jagger was on there. Einstein was on there, like business people, arts people, everything. They went through like 300 data points and said, what do these guys all have in common? Were they, were they born rich? Were they born poor and became rich? Were they, you know, homeschooled? Like, what was it? And the only thing that came back 100% all the way through all of these amazingly you know, high performers is they had a parent of the opposite sex. So it was a son, it was the mom. If it was a daughter, it was the dad who believed in them, un- like unwavering, blinding, you can do anything you want, right? They start climbing a tree. They're like, you can climb that tree. You can climb a bigger tree if you want to, right? They're not like, oh, you're going to fall out. You're going to get hurt. And I look back after he said that and both of my parents always were like, I mean, anything, I, I was outlandish, right? I'd say I don't want to do all this stuff when I was a kid. And they, they never once told me I couldn't do it. And it's really stuck with me. Wow, man, I'm, I'm feeling you. I'm, <laughs> I'm in this moment. And this, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's why I think about it right now. My girls are three year and six months. And so I'm definitely in a place where there's a limit to, you know, these wonderful didactic lessons that I can teach them. But I'm like really on believing that those formative years that just having this huge, overwhelming presence of love towards them is like the basis of confidence going forward that they carry with them for the rest of lives. Nonetheless, this is not a parenting podcast. (laughs) I really appreciate you coming on talking about sales. I want some folks to reach out, get in touch. I want folks to read the book. I know you're about to rev up a new season on the podcast. The book is seven habits of scalable sales teams. Where's the best place for folks to connect with you going forward, Jeremy? I'd love for them to check out Juicy Results, J-U-I-C-Y Results. On the site, super simple website, you're going to find a link to the podcast in the main app. You can actually download the book for free. I mean, it's on Amazon. It's awesome. A lot of people get it because it's super small and they make notes in it. But you can download it for free. I'm 100% fine with that. It's like I said, it's only 50 pages. It's simple, but actionable and extremely powerful. We also have a webinar that we run on a regular basis where I basically just show you that in detail, that that three-step framework. What's a scalable sales team framework? What does that mean for you? What has it done for our clients? How can you use it tomorrow? And and truly, that's my best you know qualifier, right? If you watch that and it speaks to you, um, we can help you, right? If it doesn't, or if you watch it and you can take something away from it and you don't need us, I'm totally fine with that as well. So I just ask for you to you know check that out and see if it works for you. All right, guys, go check it out. Jeremy, thanks again for coming on. Awesome to be here, Jordan. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Please subscribe and leave us a review. 
Your feedback makes this a better show, and the more reviews we get, the better our guests become. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget that you can find us online in the Profitable Property Management Facebook group, where we mastermind with the best in the industry.